morning, y'all, and welcome back to the show. I have a very special guest on this week. It's Mr. Mark Groves himself, aka Create the Love. Mark has built an incredible following with some amazing work he's done, and um, we have a great heart-to-heart about a ton of things, obviously, including relationships. But before we get to the episode, I want to remind everyone I'm offering 40% off for a four-pack of one-on-one coaching sessions for the month of May. Uh, so whether you're in a relationship and you want to uh, work with me as a couple or if you're an individual or if you're an athlete as well too, head over to www.nicobarraza.com to learn more and you feel free to shoot me an email if you want to inquire about um, some of the things I work on with folks in sessions. Uh, the website has a ton of information, but if you have more questions, feel free to email me or if you just want to go ahead and, and book a session and take care of the and take advantage, excuse me, of the discount go ahead and, and rock it that way too. Also, I consistently forget about this, but if you're interested in supporting the podcast, if you go to the website, www.nicobarraza.com and head over to store, there's a ton of gear, affordable, sustainable clothing. Um, I have some tumblers, some coffee cups in there. So if you want to support the show, we get a little kickback for that. Um, and you get some sweet Star of the Ego Feed the Soul gear. And if you do buy something, please take a photo with it. Tag me on social media so I can share it. Um, I, a lot of people have made purchases and I'm super excited that you know gear is getting sent all over the country all over the world so if you've bought something thank you so much it means a lot and I hope you're enjoying your gear if you haven't please consider checking it out on the website um, there's a ton of cool stuff and chances are there's something on there that you might want to wear or might want to buy for someone you love now I've been wanting to have Mark on the show for a while now um, I first came across his work in 2020 and I quickly fell in love with a lot of the stuff that he's putting out there um, and I really respect a lot of the the contents and a lot of the discussions he's had on his podcast as well, too. He's had some incredible guests, uh, a handful of, of people that I've actually had on my show as well, too, such as Dr. Caroline Leaf, Dr. Alexander Solomon, some, some incredible human beings that are doing some incredible work in their respective fields. Um, and uh, I was able to share 60 Minutes with Mark and, and talk to him about a handful of things, but mostly around the human condition and around relationships and how we relate to ourselves and relate to therefore other people we're dating, our partners, our spouses. Um, and as expected, Mark is an incredibly thoughtful human being, um, very well spoken, very well thought out. So I had a, a lovely time being able to share share 60 minutes with him. And, and Mark, thank you so much, my friend, for coming on the show. Um, much respect for everything you're putting out there in the world. And here we go. Let's get to the show. Mr. Mark Groves. Well, Mr. Mark Groves, thank you so much for joining me on Star of the Ego Feed the Soul. Um, it has been a long time coming. I'm a huge fan of yours. And before we get going, I just want to thank you uh, because you don't know this, but you probably don't know this about a lot of the millions of followers you have. But um, I first came across your account when I was going through a, a deep separation myself in 2020 right as the pandemic started, and as many other um, create the loveites, I would say, uh, I just fell in love with your content. You know, I your mm -hmm. podcast was sort of a, um, I would say an outlet for me to learn about myself, to explore more of the mistakes I made in the relationship, um, try to understand things about myself that I wanted to work on, you know, outside of me in therapy, outside of doing this other work, right? And uh, I got to say, man, like you've, you've done so much great work for people out there. And I just want to start with saying thank you because um, quite honestly, your, your show and your resources among a couple other people had kind of inspired me 
to really dive more deeply into the work I'm currently doing. Um, and so I really have to say thank you, even though you've barely just met me. So I wanted to, I wanted to start with a big, huge thank you, my friend. Oh, well, thanks so much. I, I fully receive uh, the acknowledgement and, you know, the pandemic. I, I went through a breakup right before you did. So it's probably good timing for content. <laughs> you know, that breakup, I very much navigated as much as I could. I, I navigated it out loud so that people could hear my process as I heard my process too. Mm. Yeah. No, and I could, I think that was palpable through your content at the time. Cause I was, you know, obviously we're influenced about what's currently in our mind and what we're feeling, you know, and a lot of your content totally. was really around that and your sort of your, your experience personally. And I could certainly relate to a lot of those things. Right. Um, and I think just your, your way of sharing is, uh, you know, a way of sharing that I really align with. And we were talking about Dr. Alexander Solomon and, and, you know, Dr. Caroline Leaf, all these other folks on the internet. And there's, there's a ton of people that are very, very educated, but the people I personally align with are the ones that are just like no bullshit. Like, you know, I've been through this shit. I've made mistakes. <laughs> you know, I, I've, I'm not speaking at you from a place of hierarchy or this, this sort of top down thing, you know, and I, and I really respected that about you because in the majority of your episodes I listened to, it was just this inquisitive manner of trying to understand more about yourself, the human experience, about love, about relating. And uh, that's certainly the journey I'm on as well. Yeah, thanks, man. No, I, I, that was one of the reasons that I really got into the work was, uh, you know, when I went through a breakup when I was 27 and I felt like no one was telling the truth about relationships. And if they were, I certainly wasn't exposed to them. And at the time, you know, the internet, had, you know, I don't, I'm not dating myself too much here. The internet existed and Google existed, uh, but there wasn't, you know, a large shared body of knowledge on how to navigate heartbreak, how to navigate relationships. And you think, what is the greatest determinant of the health and quality of our life? Uh, the quality of our health too, it's relationships. And yeah. yet there's not a mandatory, beautiful course on how to communicate well, how to navigate disagreement mm. well. I mean, if that was a mandatory course in schools, imagine what the world would be like. Oh man, be so agree. I've brought that up a couple of times. It's like we're taught math, science, reading, writing, history, depending on where you are, right? All these different things. And the most important thing about being human is relating. It's the number one indicator of um, depression, of anxiety, of other mental health uh, issues, right? And if we look at the Harvard study, the longest study of basically of you know um, human psyche that we have, it, it's the one delineating factor of disease, of, of mental health, all these things is your right. interpersonal relationships and not the quantity, the quality of them, right? And, and that's pretty much entirely what your work, my work's based on. And it's interesting because being a scientist my whole life, my undergrads in environmental science, I have a master's in environmental engineering and all these like pragmatic ways of thinking. And then I got to relationships, right? To love. And I was raised by a single mom, two grandparents, you know, had great relationships, but had a ton of dysfunction just like everyone else does. And I started to realize like, holy shit, I have, I have all these other things in life sort of pieced together, but my relationships not doing so well. Like these things inside of me, this shadow that comes out, my responses, my reactions, my triggers, my anger, my resentment as a, as a young man, you know, and how I respond to other people's, you know, shadow that they're dealing with too. It just invoked this sense of like, I got to start to own my shit and be better at relationships in order to <laughs> right? attract a better partner. Yeah. To be a better one, to be proud of ourselves. You know, today I was sitting before I came here, I was sitting having brunch with Kai 
in New York. And of course, you know, we're sitting beside some young people and I'm listening to them talk. I think they're, they're definitely in college. And I was like, man, I wonder what the conversations I had were like in college, you know, remembering some of them. And I said to Kai, I for sure said some stupid misogynistic shit. And she's mm-hmm. like, yeah, you did for sure. <laughs> you yeah. know? And I'm like, yeah. you probably didn't. And she's like, no, I didn't say anything. She was already mature. I kind of consider her like a hot grandma because internally she's like 85. Uh, but you think about how much the gift of evolution is, how much the gift mm-hmm. of awareness is. But also I was thinking about this too in that, that new awarenesses in, in, uh, in and of themselves have a blessing and a curse. The blessing being the new awareness offers new behavior uh, and a new possibility. But it, the curse of it is that you have to sit through the awareness that you didn't do that before, that you have previous times where you didn't act that way. And so we have to actually sit through the acceptance of that in order to change our behavior. And, you know, I kind of sat in the discomfort of just recognizing who I've been in the past, uh, which, of course, informs who I am today. So there's a beautiful side to the darkness always. Mm-hmm. And that's, again, it's something else that we don't teach in society. Yeah, one of the one of the pieces from that that I think I, I myself have struggled with a lot and I know a lot of folks with and clients I've worked with have struggled with is how to find the balance of acceptance of self versus motivation to change, right? Because there's like this kind of tightrope we're supposed to walk in therapy, psychology, mental health, what have you. And everyone's like, well, accept yourself, love yourself, right? Accept others. Right. Yeah. But then there's all, all, all of us have pieces of ourself that just quite frankly, aren't great you know, and they come from, from traumatic childhood experiences or adolescent experiences and unresolved, undealt with trauma. So what do you tell folks that, you know, are aware they've built up a baseline of awareness of like, Hey, I have these things to work on, but I'm also trying to practice self love, but I also want to change these things so I can be healthier. Hmm. Well, there's, I think a misconception that we, that, that needing to change something means it's not lovable. You know, that that the actual behavior that we have had or still maybe do uh, is in some way not worthy because it needs to be transformed. But you can still love it. You know, that's what's not modeled for us. You know, it's not modeled by our religions. Generally, it's not modeled by our culture. Often those things are all synonymous. And so we're taught, like, be this way. If you get to if you live a virtuous, kind life and hide all the things you did wrong, then when you get to the gates, they decide whether you go to heaven or hell. Again, something external is deciding for you, which is, I mean, you think of all the messaging, not to mention that it's usually an old white guy in the sky who's deciding that, you know, in and, and I just think about how many of those messages are perpetuated in the way we see ourselves. You know, I think mm-hmm. to love oneself is to accept oneself, but is to not accept one's mediocrity. You know, mm-hmm. I think there is a catch with responsibility. Responsibility, awareness brings possibility. And if you're, when you get used to it, or when, when maybe you step into the potential of new awareness, you realize that the edge you should always be living on is that old behaviors that don't serve you are dying and new ones are being born. Well, what a state to live in because that's the same thing as loving someone. And what I mean by that is when you love someone, you are in the same moment processing losing them because the more potential you step into opening your heart, you are also considering at least unconsciously, can you hold this? Can you hold this if you lose it? Because you will lose it. Everyone will, you know, your relationships will end. If it's not literal in the mortal space, it's 
actually one of you dies first or both of you do. Either way, the relationship is coming to a close. And that's also paying attention to behaviors that need to die. And, you know, that's, I don't think as a culture, we're very, we're very, we are very death phobic. And that perpetuates everything we do, including the, how we look at behaviors that need to go. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think self-acceptance and transformation, like to accept a behavior that needs to change, you have to change it. It, it, Like change has to coexist with that or else you will feel shame. And you'll, I mean, I think that's the, one of the greatest sources of addiction is I need to numb the awareness that I have greater potential than the one I'm living in. I need Mm -hmm. to numb the pain of my possibility that I'm not actually stepping towards. You know, Gabor Mate talks about how the wrong question is why the addiction, the right question is why the pain I think so much of our pain is due to unrealized potential because we're living in the rules that someone else gave us. Woo. Let's go, man. That is some <laughs> that is some very profound uh wordsmithry right there. I, I I just that was that was so good, dude. I really love it what you said. My follow-up to that is, you know, this happens a lot, specifically with the exacerbation of social media, where you'll have a huge group of people follow, let's say, relational accounts like yours or therapy accounts, right? And I find that some folks only engage with certain content content that validates their experience, Mm -hmm. meaning that like they search for posts that make them feel victimized in a way, okay? And so gone through a breakup and you're shaking your head because I'm sure you're kind of picking up what I'm putting down, right? And, Mm -hmm. And so if people follow all these accounts and there's a lot of great information, but we're picking and choosing, you know, what information we're using sort of out of our own shadow, right? We can stay stuck in these echo chambers, even with good intentions, even while following accounts like yours, accounts like Dr. Carolyn Leaf, all these incredible accounts, you know, like Vienna. And how do you explain to folks, um, or even if this is what you think, that the, the change is really less of the outside? Because even when we talk about red flags and about like, you know, people will say, well, I track narcissists, I track codependence, and we put all these terms, right? But in my mind, it's like the work is, is inside, right? No matter what your outside climate is doing, you're making a choice to be there, to be present, to engage with all the things around you, whether it's spirituality, whether it's religion, whether it's this lover, that lover, this parent, that friend, whatever, right? And I find that a lot of people can get in this like beehive mentality where, you know, you look in the comment se- sections of certain posts and it'll just be people just like bashing on their exes or bashing on they dated a narcissist or something. And although I'm very for like recognizing when we've been hurt, obviously, and, mm-hmm. and, and experiencing the pain, both emotionally and somatically, there seems to be this kind of consensus in, in some groups where it's like, hey, I'm really just here to kind of like complain or victimize. And in my mind, that doesn't invoke change, right? It's like we have to take some sort of accountability or responsibility for are 100%, as my friend Danae Logan says a lot. Um, and, and she talks about interdependence, which is a lot different than codependence, right? And so with your experience, because you've been doing this for a long time now, what do you tell people if you notice like behaviors that people are sort of, I would say passively or actively selecting certain content to interact with that kind of sticks them in an echo chamber? And this can be applied to politics, to a science, to environmental movements, to anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. But I think it really is important in the relational mental health space because the the switch where we flip, where we're like, okay, I need to start working on this. I need to empower myself and I can't just stay in the victim mindset really kind of gets a person to that point you just explained, Mark, which is sort of 
the ability to accept, but also the motivation to change those things. So is there anything you like tell folks or is that something you talk about at all as far as like sticking yourself in an echo chamber, even with the good intentions of like embettering oneself? Oh, man, I have so many thoughts on this on a societal level as well as an individual level. Uh, I think there's a misconception that to step out of victimhood is to negate being victimized. You know, that there is some sort of binary there that if I if I step into an empowered space and stop really weaponizing or empowering the victim mindset, that I will have not valued or given credence to the actual victimization I've experienced, you know, and that's not to do that. You know, I think when we look, let's say, for example, that someone had a tough childhood, they can both have experienced being a victim and also use that as a very transformative tool. You think of the difference between post-traumatic stress disorder and post-traumatic growth. Mm. You know, there are people that go through traumatic experiences and are meet a more spiritual depth. They find more power within them themselves. They use these moments for transformation. Mm. Also, you know, when we start to look for information, let's say we were cheated on. I think that's a very common one. So then we start looking, well, my ex was a narcissist. My ex was this, my ex was that. We want to pathologize everything. And I think that's a very normal human behavior to not yeah. want it to be our fault. Right. And as you were saying, your friend says, and my friend Traver says something similar, which is we're 100% responsible for our 50%. Yeah. You know, And you alluded to this too, that whatever relationship we're in, we are choosing to be in. Mm-hmm. Whether we want to accept that choice or not, the problem with not accepting that choice is then you can't take responsibility for what you choose. Yeah. So you put all of that and then you add in that when you think of victimization from a more evolutionary perspective, a couple things. One, there's a bit of narcissism that comes with victimization. And what I mean by that, and I'll delicately explore that, is that when we have experienced pain, we often believe that no one else has experienced what we've experienced. We mm-hmm. isolate ourselves. So that's what I mean by there's a narcissism to our suffering. When we actually start to share with people what we've been through, we start to see that other people have been through similar things or maybe, you know, close to. And we're actually not all alone. Mm-hmm. And wait, we can look at their path through that thing. And and wow, now I can see a path through mine. And that's how we start to give hope to other people. That's where I think, you know, we become the teacher we needed. And we start to teach from what we know. And mm-hmm. the other side of that is if you look at two GoFundMe pages and one has a story of victimization and the other one doesn't, the person with the story of victimization gets more money. Mm-hmm. So resources go to people who claim virtuosity and victimization. Again, none of that is to negate the experience of it. Um, And, you know, you add to that the momentum of cancel culture, you add to that the momentum of virality that comes to victim stories. Mm -hmm. Again, you know, that you have to be so mindful of language because it's not dismissing those. It's just, what do we want to put our energy towards? Do I want to put my energy towards proving to everybody how hurt I was and then also to my ex by never loving again? Like you hurt me so bad that I never opened my heart again. And your ex is, if they're a narcissist, they're like, I don't even care. I'm not even thinking about you. And here we are spending our lives trying to prove to someone else by staying small that that moment was significant, not realizing that that moment could be what informs how we choose partners, what boundaries we need, what 
skill sets we need, you know, that uh, the, the getting stuck in pathologizing is so easy. Mm-hmm. But what about pathologizing ourselves? Like, I remember J.P. Sears, who obviously is a controversial for many people, but <laughs> I I love his overt self-expression. I love mm-hmm. his his way of doing his art. I don't agree with everything, but I do love his way of doing his art. And he, I remember he said, maybe the wrong question is, why do I attract narcissists as opposed to why am I a good match for them? Mm. And that is where responsibility comes. If I could say, hey, wait, I was in an abusive relationship I was in a relationship with someone who gaslit me. I was in a relationship with someone who manipulated me. I was in a relationship and I lost myself completely. Mm. Okay, why did I do that? Why did I think that they were a good match for me? Why did I think their behaviors were actually something I should tolerate? Who taught me that? You know, now we're in a sea of responsibility, but that also is possibility because now if I'm willing to look at those things, I can actually change what I'm choosing, but I can't do that till I accept who I am. Mm -hmm. That was a long answer. No, long answers are appreciated here, my friend. This is the place to give them. Um, So one of the things you and you talked about, I think right after you and Kai split up is uh, the the idea of a container, right? To Mm. to describe a relationship. And and when you got back together, you described it as like, you know, you were in this one container that sort of you used up the space in that container and it needed to break open for you guys to have a a different relationship. And you built a new container, right? To house and it was much more space. The the ceiling was non-existent, right? You're right. And you kind of redefine the relationship and you rebuilt. I I really love that visual and it's something I, I share quite a bit. Um, but it, it brought this question to my mind. So a week ago, I, I answered questions for clients and for followers on Instagram, like most people do. And one of the questions was like, uh, you know, my partner has an ex partner who, uh, he still, um, you know, offers emotional support to when she reaches out, it's just a friendship, but I'm not okay with it. Right. And it was a, it was a woman speaking about a man. Um, and obviously there's, there's a ton of different pieces to that, that could be p- potentially right. And so I had answered this question on TikTok and Instagram w- with the, sort of theory that, you know, well, we don't know what's really going on. We don't know if this is just a jealousy issue of this person is, if it's much more than just an emotional support system, if there's like, you know, some boundaries being overstepped and how they're communicating X, Y, and Z. But I did note that we have this addiction in our Western culture where we bastardize or shame people for keeping in touch with their ex-partners mm. because we live under the illusion of predisposed fear that they're going to cheat on us with someone else, right? And we forget that relationships are choices, like you said. And so when we try to control others, we do nothing but hurt ourselves in the relationship in, in entirely, right? And so I had so many comments on TikTok where there's people just being <laughs> yeah, like, this guy's cheating on her, like <laughs> once a cheater, always a cheater. Like, And I'm like, she didn't even say he was cheating. She just said he was helping out <laughs> this woman emotionally, but he still wakes up next to this woman every day. He's obviously choosing this relationship you know, and in my mind, in my early 20s, I got to be honest with you, Mark, I, I'm a Scorpio just like you, my friend, and I'm an extremely jealous human being, right? And so uh, I've been able to work through that. But in my early 20s, I remember my first relationship, she had a bunch of photos of her exes and she would keep them, you know, in a certain part of her computer. And I was like, I would always, I've never been in a relationship before. So mine used zero relational mm. experience. And I was like, why do you have photos of your ex-partners? So I was 23 at the time, 22. And she's like, well, it's because like I, they're loving memories, you know, like I'm with you. And, and I couldn't conceptualize that. My my ego was just like, this is not fair. You know, this is, and it, now that I'm, you know, 32 years old now, it's 10 years removed from this relationship. And I'm like, that was totally okay. 
like she didn't mm. she stepped over no boundary that she was just like you know i have i have photos of past um, partners that you know i still love their memories that i would share with my children if i ever have some that i can just have right does that mean i'm still in love with them no but I, that love doesn't evaporate that love is always going to be there right the lessons are always going to be there and i think we live in this culture where much like cancel culture we cancel exes a lot right we just say that this person destroyed ruined my life and you know f-u-c-k with them and you know just like <laughs> we get on this high horse right There's sometimes Right, exactly. Sometimes that uh that 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 the sever that relationship like completely sever it is is needed, right? You talked this a lot. You know, if there's a ton of trauma there and two people can't rectify, but I do feel like a lot of people um sort of throw love out without even giving it the honor it needs. And and one thing I think that you and Kai talked about is your sort of separating ceremony you had right? And that was such a beautiful thing in my mind because I really wanted that with my, my past partner. You know, we, we caused each other a lot of pain, but God, we shared a lot of incredible, wonderful, like real experiences together, right? Mm-hmm. And, and I really think it was the idea of like the societal norm of like, once you're done, you have to be completely done and cut communication, right? And I think that for a lot of people that has to happen for a period of time, but I know deep down inside, I can be friends with past partners and still care for them and still show up for them emotionally if, if they need someone because I care about them, but be in love with someone else and have a, have a you know, um, what it's the word like growth oriented, evolutionary oriented enough partnership that doesn't like control with jealousy, right? Mm-hmm. And so I got all these comments and I was like, man, I really want to ask Mark about this because, you know, it seems like as a society, we're so addicted to use that word to being right, you know, we're so addicted to being right that even when we're hurting, which is the best time for growth opportunities, we're just like, this is just impossible because if it were to happen, it means that this person's unfaithful, they're cheating, they're lying, they're, you know, betraying us. And how do we change that in culture and society? Is it, you know, how do we start to change that narrative? I, I know your answer is probably going to be like, you know, looking inside somehow, but some people are so attached to this because we've been taught this traditionally. You know, like if someone shares their emotional capacity with someone else of 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 uh, the sex they're attracted to, all of a sudden it's like not okay with me, right? How do mm. we change that in society? And do we need to? Is it actually unhealthy? Well, I think I think you nail it in that a lot of us relate to our exes in an unhealthy way, you know. And I think there needs to be some level of self awareness that's yeah. that can even make this possible because I don't think a lot of people have your level of self-awareness about an ex and how, you know, we often don't even have things self-expressed when things end. We don't, Mm. you know, close them with grace. We believe that endings are failures. All these contribute to holding on to things, things that aren't expressed. We think we can't express them. We sometimes keep exes in our lives for the possibility it might work even unconsciously. And it might not even be us. It might be them who are in relationship with us hoping unconsciously or consciously that one day we might reopen the door. So they lean in with emotional dependence to see if they can still be important, mm-hmm. even though we're in a new relationship. So as, uh, as you know, I think is always necessary, it depends, you know? Mm-hmm. And I think that the relationship you're in, if treated as sacred, needs to at least first be a priority in yeah. terms of... What is it in my relationship with my ex that feels heavy for you? 
Like I would want to hear my partner. Is this bringing up things from your past where you've been cheated on with someone with their ex or with someone else? What's it bringing forward for you? Because even the, in that experience, it's off, the relationship itself is offering a space to heal whatever's there. And also, are we, as the person who's in relationship with the ex, are we afraid of cutting them off? Are we afraid of potentially quote unquote, hurting their feelings? Are we afraid of ending things because of what that might mean? Um, Maybe we have a hard time with endings, so we don't like actually producing endings in our own life. With all that said, I think if we can close relationships with grace, you know, then having a connection to someone from our past can be healthy. Mm. Um, You know, like if I entered relationship with another woman, I would still have grace for Kai Mm -hmm. because I would have so much gratitude for her and how she shaped me as a man and who I am as a partner. And that's true of all my exes, Mm -hmm. you know, but I'm not in active friendships with any of them. And that's probably just because I don't know that, one, that's appropriate, and two, again, we could have that conversation. All circumstances are different because someone might be best friends with their ex now. Someone might be – so I think it really depends on the couple and it depends on the people, you know? Right. I think it, it, it usually sticks out in my mind when people are co-parenting, right? They've been through a divorce and they're they're going through like a healthy co-parenting yeah. dynamic. They, you know, and I see really healthy relationships like that where like people get remarried or have another partner, but they still love their past, you know, spouse because they- What a beautiful thing children. to see. What an incredible yeah. thing. What an incredible thing to teach people, right? Um, you know, the, the other question it brings to mind is that, um, you know, you brought up having a level of self-awareness and that's that's pretty much like the ethos of this show is that the most important subject you'll ever study is yourself in in my opinion you know mm-hmm. and and i think that um you speak about rock bottom in a lot of your episodes right when you, when you experience rock bottom nicola paris speaks about the dark night of the soul there's all these ways to describe it right and walking through your shadow all these all these different ways to describe it and do you think that that is inherent and required to build a base level of self-awareness or can someone else help another to be more aware of oneself on a base level? And I I guess let me reframe this question. Like for someone that is not really self-aware, it seems like they're probably not going to ask these relational questions about like, wow, how did I contribute? How did, you know, how did I affect their response when they were angry rather than just say, well, they have anger issues, right? Mm -hmm. And look at it from this, this perspective. Do you think that someone has to find that motivation to see and to change on their own or can they find it through community? I think they can do both. You know, I think when we talk about dark nights of the soul or uh, rock bottoms, these are all spaces where we're done. Like we're done with our bullshit. We're done with the choices we're making. We're done. We think of it more on like a drug level, you know, I think, or alcohol, but it could really be a relationship ending. It could really be a fight. It could really be, it's really usually a large experience where the world and what we knew is sort of collapsing, but it could be a small thing. It could be like literally the awareness that I'm reactive sometimes, or I have defensiveness I need to work on. That can be the experience of, of a rock bottom, but it's just, we become hypersensitized to smaller ones, you know? When we hang out with people who value self-awareness, we will we will gain self-awareness. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of like hanging out 
with people who are already the way you want to become, you'll naturally adapt, adopt some of their behaviors and their ways of being. And same is true in relationship. You know, I, it does require some level of humility and the, the willingness to ask ourselves questions about how we show up in the world and how we engage with it and what we choose. And that can be birthed by someone asking us those questions and actually holding us accountable with boundaries to how we behave and what we choose. Mm -hmm. So I think the first step can come from either someone outside of us saying, if you don't change this or you don't begin to look at it, then this is changing. That can be our rock bottom, you know, where we're finally like, oh, shit. And that happens a lot in divorce. You know, unfortunately, women... Well, it's not unfortunate, but women initiate divorce more than men, yeah. uh, which makes sense because they generally have a more accurate barometer of relational health and a lower tolerance for unhealthy relationships. And that's probably largely due to survival mm -hmm. because they couldn't handle too much emotional fluctuation from men because it could be erratic and dangerous. Right. Uh, and the other side of it is that when they say they're leaving, it takes about two years. When they say they're uh, unhappy, and this could be true for men too, this could be true for anybody, but it's about two years till they leave. But when they leave, they're gone. And that's usually when the other person goes, wait, I'm going to actually do this. I'm going to change. Come back. And it's like, it's too late. Yeah. We are hearing these requests all the time from our partners. Would you read this book with me? Would you go to therapy with me? Would you listen to this podcast? Would you do this? Hey, I miss us. Hey, you know, I feel like you might have a hard time expressing your feelings sometimes, or I feel like I initiate sex more, or I feel like these are all little invitations to self-responsibility and self-awareness because really even awareness without responsibility is fuck all. Like I can know that I have a shit behavior, but if I'm not willing to take responsibility for it, that awareness is, it's useless, you know? Yeah, indeed. I think that it, it applies to what Dr. Solomon talks about a lot, which she preempts self-awareness with relational, which is, you know, RSA relational self-awareness and self-awareness will not being applied through action is, is really just, being awareness that you're being an asshole or something's right. wrong, right? It's like you know, I, I can am be aware. An asshole. <laughs> exactly. But, I can be aware that I'm and being I'm a shit. I'm going to stay that way. But I'm just going to stay that way, and someone will will walk by and love me, you know. Um, and I think that no, that you you hit it right on the head, and I think it does speak to this the sense of entitlement, you know, that that is is deeply rooted within our culture. Like I'm entitled to this. I'm entitled to, you know, being shown up for, and. One of the key indicators I, I look for, and, and this is interesting because a lot of people ask me like what to write in their dating profiles. And, and I'm like, okay, I see a lot of people putting down red flags that they're not looking for, green flags, you're looking for all these things. And you're telling about what you're looking for. What are you offering too? Mm -hmm. You know, like who are you? Because this is a long list of what you're looking for, which I think is totally valid, totally relevant. But what work have you done? Like, you know, what are you learning about yourself? What mistakes have you made? That's what I want to know too, because I want to engage with that part of you because that's what I want to show too, to get closer, to sort of heal and connect through wounds, if you will, right? Mm -hmm. And as far as entitlement goes in relationships, you deal with this every day. What are some of the big things that stick out in your mind as far as like, what are some implicit and explicit biases we have, you know, throughout generations about like, I'm entitled to this in a relationship. Like this is how love should be. Well, I think a lot of us don't think our shit stinks. You know, that's that's a survival-based thing. That's normal human stuff is I think that on average men have a pretty low capacity for shame. Mm -hmm. You know, we have a 
and I don't mean to pick on it. I, I'm speaking from my own personal experience that when someone told me that I needed to grow, it was easier to manipulate and use language to not have to actually hold that and realize I'm not actually enough. Yeah. And I don't mean self-worth. I mean, like, literally, I have potential to be a better partner and I'm not living into it. And, and that the way I am actually currently showing up is not leading the relationship and you know so much of the male's experience in relationship and this is likely more heteronormative but it doesn't have to be is that we you know we want to be the ultimate provider the ultimate protector at least unconsciously we've been taught that and so anytime we hear that hey, you're not communicating enough. You're not doing this enough. Well, the paradox is that the society raised men to not have emotion and that to be in conflict and contrast to masculinity. So mm-hmm. in the moment that our partners are asking us to show up more, they're actually asking us for, they're asking for us to enter into a skill set that means we have to rebel against the model of masculinity we've been taught, which means we have to recognize and reorganize and redefine masculinity to realize it doesn't live with emotionality. Those are actually two different things. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I I say that more about men because women tend to be more attuned and more emotionally adept. As Harriet Lerner talks about this because she says, hey, like, why do women want to learn more about relationships than men? And we mm-hmm. talked about this before. I'm sure most, a lot of your listeners are women, a lot of your Instagram followers. Mm-hmm. Same with mine. It's probably about 75, 25, if not 80, if not 85, 15. Right. You know, right. is there something like that? So it, I'm really glad you bring this up. So uh, when, it's funny, when I was working for Connor Vienna, I, we ran analysis for all the accounts like yours, right? And And the sort of, the consensus was around 90 to 10 or 80 to 20. So 80% yeah. female, 90% female for, for Sylvester, for you, for for everybody, right? For Dr. Solomon. Um, I think because my background is being a pro athlete, I actually have 50% men and 50% women. Oh, wow. Pretty much yeah, split that makes down sense. the middle. But that that is just because I built my following, you know, running and racing around the world. And then I've always been writing about this stuff, but I transitioned to doing this pretty much exclusively. And my following didn't really change. Although, as you say that, like, the new followers I've been gaining are more predominantly women, right? Mm-hmm. I would say the new followership is probably, you know, 70, 65% women versus men. And I'm hoping, you know, that that changes because as more men, you know, realize that they need to work on their relationships too, right? Regardless of their sexuality, just like based on, you know, masculine, traditional masculine norms, right? Patriarchal norms. And and um, you asked me that question and it just brought to mind, like, you know, it seems like there's this intertwined relationship of capitalism and masculinity in modern world, right? And so it's always about like, what can we conquer? What can we get? And and I talk about this as it, as it affects all genders, right? Not just not just the male, but it it seems to be, you know, ingrained in most of our psyches that we are obsessed with goals, with money, with fame, with fortune, right? And we're mm-hmm. sold like you get all this stuff, you surround your life with stuff, and you won't be lonely anymore. You right. won't be sad anymore, right? Um, which is interesting because at the peak of my athletic performance, when I was training so hard, traveling around the world, getting paid to live in France, Switzerland, all these places, I was the most lonely I've ever been because I was feasibly isolated from any sort of deep connection because my one focus was around performance versus connection, right? And I think some people can balance it very well, but I certainly couldn't at the time because I was young. But that sort of leads me to this question is like, 
prioritization matters. You speak about priorities all the time, right? And where we put our energy into grows. So if we just put our energy into ourselves, meaning that like money, fame, riches, social media falling, whatever, there's like this devoid area of our spirit and our soul that we're not feeding. And, you know, you, you find this in a lot of sort of famous circles is that people have a lot of fame are really sad, really angry, really like feel alone because their life is under consistent scrutiny from the public eye. But deep down inside, like they might not have the best relationships. They might not have, have the best connections, right? People don't see them for who they are. They just see this caricature or this archetype of a human being, this actor, this actress, this athlete, this politician, whatever, right? Do you think that it's it's an innately an issue with capitalism, with patriarchy, with like, where does this mindset of like just consumption, consumption, consumption come from? And, you know, I mean, this is a huge ass question. So I'm sorry just to lay it on your shoulders, but <laughs> Mr. Groves has some answers here. I know he does. Um, you know, where do we start with rectifying it so that we can have a better balance of like, yeah, I should have goals. And of course I want to build monetary wealth and, and contribute to the greater good of society. But like, I need to work on myself so I can have better, healthier interpersonal relationships because that's where real like stability in my mind comes from. Well, I think a lot of it starts with what is my intention behind what I do. You know, like if my intention to build wealth is to get status and power and be chosen as a mate or to build sexuality to be have status, power and be chosen as a mate, you know, and desirability or because, you know, both are, as Esther Perel talks about, the oldest trading system in the world is women trading sex for power and men trading power for sex. And the Me Too movement was ultimately the calling down of men. And she speaks about what about the calling forward of women too. Mm -hmm. And that's a really delicate line because how do I get to say what is exploitation versus empowerment? Um, certainly as a <laughs> white straight male, I uh, recognize the delicacy of that line. And it's not something I'm going to say is it's either this or that. But I would say the intention that goes behind the the, uh, cre the creation of power and whatever that means is actually really what's important. Mm -hmm. And I think they're all overlaid. You know, like if the only way that a woman could get power is through sex and exploitation, it's like there needs to be other pathways. And we also need to explore what is how is power derived and what is power? Because, you know, like ultimately, if you're a man with more resources, you're likely going to get more women. You're going to get right. women who are attracted to resources who mm -hmm. were taught that. Mm -hmm. And that's not their fault. And that's not the man's fault. But it is our responsibility what we do with these things. And so mm -hmm. as men or women or just people, we have to look for how do we exploit power? How do we uh, use paying for things or being sexual or whatever it is to get somebody to manipulate a behavior, to get an outcome. Again, all these are really human things. You know, I kind of think about, I think it's the praying mantis that once it bangs, the female eats the male's head or something crazy. Yep, same with the black you know? widows. Yep. Yeah, well, maybe it's black widows then, sorry. Maybe it's no, it's praying mantis too. You oh, got they do it too. Those. Well, they shit, too. there's a couple. <laughs> and, you know, you think about that. It's like, I think that we as humans are waking up to the impact of our unconscious evolutionary choices. You know, there was a time when true, the ability to wield a sword was really important for the survival of a tribe and a species, just like marriage was actually created to get more in-laws. So you had more land to travel on that was safe. So you could share resources. And then in sharing resources, you also shared kids. You know, you would say, 
oh, my daughter's marrying your son from this tribe. And, and then, you know, you look at the evolution of the agricultural revolution and you had the marriage was then used to keep rich people rich and poor people poor. Like if you work on land, you're not marrying someone who owns land. So we just have to take into account all these things that shape us and then look at how they shape our behaviors. Because certainly when you start to build a sacred relationship with yourself and have admiration and reverence for yourself and look at what you're choosing in your life and what foods you're putting in your body and what the government has told you and look at the food pyramid, it's fucking bullshit. It's not based on actual health and science. And you look at how we were told that fat was bad and sugar, no, we didn't talk about that. And then now we have the largest diabetes and obesity epidemic. And the food industry said, oh, this thing has 0% fat, but it has more sugar and this is going to cause large amounts of inflammation. And then you're going to need pharmaceutical products to treat those things. I was a pharmaceutical rep for 14 years, so yeah. I take... Uh, I, I hope that I'm re uh, recreating my karmic path through this, but... You know, you think of all of the ways that we've been lied to in order to monetize, in order to exploit, in order to extract. And I say all of this to answer your question in this way, that once you restore a sacred relationship with yourself yeah. in the way that you operate in relationships, in the way that you treat other people, you know, even in the recognition that I share that when I was younger, I for sure had some misogynistic conversations in college talked about you know, hooking up with chicks and not even having reverence or respect for the story or the being that I shared yeah. that with. Although I did in the moment, I'm just saying the way I told the story, it was as if it was just a transaction, yeah. but it was such a sacred transaction. And I didn't see it then as that. And mm. when you restore that relationship with yourself, then you have to restore it with the planet. You can't step on an ant anymore and just think, mm. oh, well. You can't just kill things. You can't mm -hmm. take more than you need. Right. And wow, I mean, like, that's that's a coming home in a way. That's why I think there's so much sadness associated with self-awareness because right. you realize that in grief is actually the thing that cooks you, the thing that transforms you, the thing that says, wait, when you look out at the world, you see so much suffering. Yep. And okay, can you hold all of it, right. you know? I think you're speaking to, you know, the, the overarching practice of mindfulness, but also this capitalistic ideation of selective mindfulness, meaning like, well, I'm only going to be mindful in certain situations, but when, when it matters like grief or despair, I just, oh, I won't really touch that because it hurts or it's <laughs> right. hot or it's fiery. Right. And that's, that's just not really how it works. Right. I think in my mind, Dr. Leaf speaks about this a lot is the difference between the brain versus the mind. Right. And, um, biologically we are programmed to look for the easiest way forward, the less expenditure of energy, comfort, comfort, comfort. How can I be comfort, right? Comfortable. And so when we go through heartbreak or something, well, what's the easiest way I have to do less amount of work so I can start to feel better. And that works in certain things right but in a lot of in a lot of things our, our nervous system is really just not designed to just hit fight or flight when it comes to deep conscious work right when it comes to being mindful right because that's that's the animalistic response fight or flight right right and that serves a purpose right if someone's you know threatening your existence uh, threatening someone you love you know if you if you have a quick like reaction time because you know an asteroid is coming you like obviously these, it's here for a reason right we have to have that it's innate um, embedded in our dna but so is consciousness. So is being a sentient being, right? And with it, with that consciousness comes the ability to choose and the ability to 
respond versus react as you talk like the reaction is sort of the animalistic nature of us that the trauma built up where we just boom react immediately with this response that we've been taught since children versus the breath that separates the trigger from the response right and i want to know your thoughts about you know how do we maintain a state of mindfulness in the midst of being severely triggered right because even the most conscious people and myself included i mean there are times i'm triggered and i have to i have to really think about I'm like okay is my response about to be like something that's thought out or am i just responding out of my own trauma <laughs> trigger ego right and and i'm sure you catch yourself even with all the work you've done too you know how how do we develop that more deeply within ourselves that space between reaction versus response in response to the trigger I always think of a line from AA where they say it's about progress, not perfection. Yeah. And uh, my friend Vienna Farron, who you were speaking about earlier, she says uh, the victory is in the process, not the outcome. And I think about that a lot. You know, I sort of reworded that to the juices in the journey, which I'm sure that probably someone else said that too. And I, I say all that because it's like, being able to observe and recognize that you can get better is not an example of failure. It's an example of awareness. And me being reactive in a moment and then coming back to, let's say, for example, my partner or even a friend and saying, hey, I, I actually could have handled that better. That's me actually repairing and building and becoming stronger. That's actually me using this what someone might see as a failure as actually a way to deepen intimacy and trust. Like what I'm saying to them when I said, hey, I could have handled that better and I will next time. What I'm saying is that I honor us. I honor this process and I'm not perfect in this idea that doing the work means you no longer have work to do is, I don't, I don't know where we get that from. I, you know, I think there's perhaps people who present as being healed or, uh, perfect or transformed or enlightened or whatever that might be. And although it definitely certainly sounds like Eckhart Tolle is enlightened because I listen to him talk and I'm like, I have no idea what you're saying. And yet I resonate with whatever you're saying, you know, yep. your pain body. It's just your pain body. I, <laughs> I look at it from the perspective of triggers actually don't go anywhere. You know, it's just what we do with them that changes. Mm -hmm. And, as you build more awareness and you become more conscious of the way you're being and the way you interact with other people and the way your needs bump up against other people's needs, I mean, that's relationship is mm -hmm. this constant negotiation of where do I end and you begin and where do I sell myself out because of fear and where do I let you sell yourself out because of fear and where do I exploit that or where do I let you exploit it or whatever it might be. You know, that's ultimately the goal is interdependence. But because the self is always changing, because we're always growing, that edge is always changing. That line is always changing. Our boundaries are not permanent lines in the sand. They're actually movable. Mm -hmm. And we have to, you know, Alexander Solomon, I remember she had this beautiful post where she said, over your lifetime, you'll be married to, you'll have many marriages, but it might be to the same person. Mm -hmm. You know, really giving this uh, acceptance and fluidity and, and flexibility to that in your relationship, you're going to change. And if you allow yourself to change, you're, you can certainly allow your partner to change. 
Uh, and that actually doesn't pull you away from one another. If you're talking about the change, it actually deepens your relationship. And if your relationship is a place that celebrates your change, then the relationship is enriched through that. And if the relationship is a place that celebrates sovereignty and, and individuality and dreams being achieved, then, then the relationship actually enriches your life. You know, so many of us are in relationship and, they become prisons. They become places where we have to stay the same, where we can't grow too much because our partner gets afraid or, or vice versa, as opposed to, you know, they, the relationship itself and our partner being the birthplace of our liberation. You know, we were talking about getting feedback from a partner can sometimes be incredible, incredibly hard. And it can be that. And you can know that it's actually showing you where you need to grow. Mm -hmm. And I say all of that to, to hopefully come to the place, which I think is always changing and, and hard, and this is the work, mm -hmm. of, of knowing that having more things to work on is actually a sign of success because it means you up-leveled somewhere right before. Right. So what a beautiful thing to actually begin to see that that's evidence of expansion, not evidence of failure. Mm. Yes, sir. So before I let you go, I just have two more questions. And the first one is you speak about religion and religiosity and dogma, you know, decent amount on your show, as do I. I'm curious if Mark Groves has a spiritual practice and how you describe that to others. Hmm. Well, my spiritual practice wouldn't fit into uh, the dogmas and doctrines of a religion. I didn't, uh, I didn't although think I have, so. <laughs> Yeah, although I have much... Uh, reverence for when they're practiced with balance and kindness and grace. Mm -hmm. um, I just think they're often weaponized. Yeah. And for me, it would be waking up in the morning, uh, sometimes meditating, often. Cool plunging is actually one way that I think you can find God pretty quick. Uh, <laughs> and it's just in, in touching a tree or like putting my feet on the ground um, or looking at the sky it's it's in honoring what we are standing upon or, or or sitting within you know like what an incredible thing it is to be part of this planet you know and i think of wade davis uh, who's an anthropologist and he talks about how we say that uh the ultimate form of human achievement is technological achievement um as if you know it's like the that's sitting at the top of the mountain and he said but you know we couldn't be further from the earth and I really believe that, that although it's obviously a sign of ex uh, great achievement, it's not the ultimate form. You know, I think staying grounded and, you know, he says that we start to see as a, a, a mountain as a pile of rocks mm -hmm. as opposed to as what it really is. And when you listen to different tribes, they have so many different thoughts about mountains being deities. And I don't know, in my bones, there's something true about that. I think my relationship to God, spirit, universe, whatever it is, is recognizing that I'm, I'm part of it all. I'm not above it all. I'm actually within it. And there's some sort of liberation that comes, at least for me, with the acceptance of that. Beautiful answer. I, I feel very similar to that myself and have sort of since developed my own sort of spirituality, you know, was raised Catholic, but um, had so many different experiences in life that it's a culmination of a lot of different beliefs and experiences myself. And it's individualized, right? Just to help me experience life through more of a clear lens and, and uh, be a kinder, more gracious person going through this, this lifetime. My last question, Mark is, you know, you've built this incredible following with all the work you've done. You've 
communicated, commented, interacted with millions of people online. You've interviewed some of the top minds in the industry of psychology, therapy, uh, financial work, all these different sectors, right? And you've certainly grown a lot since you've started this, right? What are some of the biggest lessons that I'm talking about personal of you and your life have you learned throughout the years of you being Mr. Create the Love? Hmm, what a good question. You know, if I was to look back at the first things I ever wrote, um, I think I would, one thing that's changed dramatically is just the realization that when you're in the midst of a relationship, you might know that you want to choose it, or, or there's a deeper part of your being that knows it's calling you to be expanded, uh, but in the moment, you might not be feeling elation towards your partner. You know, I... I used to think that, you know, it was really a matter of like deep connection on the first time you meet them. And I used to uh, dismiss uh, Allison, oh man, Allison Armstrong, where she said, if the connection is a 10 out of 10, like if the sexual attraction is a 10 out of 10, they're not the one. And I remember you used to think like, nah, that's fucking bullshit. Uh, but I actually agree with that now. You know, I know that those levels of sexual desire were really me distracting myself from actually being chosen or showing up for someone. They were they were designed brilliantly <laughs> to lead me away, but also to learn how to say no to immediate gratification for something deeper. So I think that's probably one of the greatest lessons I've learned is that love is something, although I started it as create the love, I don't really know that I knew the true value of those words, that it is something that we create, something that we cultivate. And if you've ever had a connection with a partner and it went away, you know you can get it back. And through the process of getting it back, you can deepen it if both people are willing to do that. And I would have not said that before. I probably would have said, um, you know, peace out, Brussels sprout, and move on. Um, but I realized there's so much value in um, as Jordan Peterson says, commitment only works if you do it. <laughs> That's such a simple statement. I heard uh, Aubrey Marcus talk about that, and I, I really appreciated the depth of that. And knowing that a commitment to another person uh, is a commitment to ourselves, too. And sometimes we commit to another person, and that actually is the absence of commitment to ourselves. And so I think those need to be paired together. And um, I know formally sometimes my commitment to others was actually abandonment of myself. Yeah. So I think that's a delicate line. And I think the last thing, although I, I certainly have many lessons, uh, I think the most significant one in the last couple of years, because the last couple of years have been so delicate online, they've been delicate in how we handle disagreement. Um, and probably just in my experience of being rather outspoken about the psychological process of lockdowns and mandates um, is recognizing that we can disagree with grace, that we can have discourse that um, right now the world is trying to put us in binaries. You're left wing, you're right wing, you're pro, you're anti. And I refuse that, you know, and I, I didn't realize in my anger and feeling othered and feeling, uh, feeling hurt and not seen, uh, especially when you're facing the voice of a million people, mm -hmm. is that I didn't realize that sometimes in my language I was divisive, trying to protect myself and, and being reactive. And so if there's one thing I've really learned, probably in the last six months especially, is 
to be a bridge. Like that's mm-hmm. it. Is like, can we hold space and realize that that compassion, that intimacy, that community, everything is deepened by the unconditional love for all perspectives. And I was listening recently to Jonathan Haidt, and he's been doing a podcast tour called uh, "How America Got So Stupid in the Last Ten Years," mm-hmm. and he talks about a quote from his his rabbi where the rabbi says uh, you know when we move beyond two binaries we inevitably end up at a third opinion and it is almost always wiser than the first two mm-hmm. and that's something that i've been really i've learned a lot about is like mm-hmm. everyone in this moment almost everybody is operating from a place of love and we're likely even orienting around the same values. We're just orienting differently. And I think when we can recognize how much fear does to us, no matter what side, quote unquote, we might feel we're on, we're actually almost always on the same side. And I don't even know how to put into words and how to get out of that or how to navigate that yet, but that's certainly something I've been learning a lot in the last bit. Incredible answer. That's I love it. It's a great place to end. Um, before I let you go, I just want to ask between do you mind and between uh, you know the social media accounts and the courses, what's coming down the pipeline for you? What what's new? Are you working on a book yet? Are you are you doing more tours for speaking engagements? What's going on in your life? Yeah, I have um, a speaking event that I'm going to launch at the end. It's going to be at the end of June in Calgary, actually in Canada, because I'm going to be back there for a bit. And then I am, uh, Kai and I are actually, excuse me, Kai and I are actually going to be doing an event together and then a program together um, called Liberated Love. And that's going to be an opportunity just for people to learn from both of us about our journey and about their journey and um, to give them the tools that we've learned and, and really have just like a large group jam on what does it mean to be liberated through love and with love and all that stuff. So yeah, thanks for asking. You bet. Can people register for that? Is there information out there? Yeah, if you sign up for my newsletter at createthelove.com, you'll get the earliest access if you follow my Instagram. Also on Do You Mind, I actually have a series coming out on masculinity. That's uh, It's called Journey, Exploring the Edges of Masculinity. And I'm just going to be interviewing a ton of men and, and, and people, actually, uh, about what does it mean to be a man, a father, you know, all of the things. And then I don't even know what it's about because I haven't had the conversations yet, but I'm super pumped to have them. Oh, I dig that, dude. That's that's such a necessary conversation. I talk about masculinity and reframing it a lot on the show. And it's just good on you for having those discussions and bringing people into the light to, you know, educate others and just have an open-ended, uh, you know, discussion around masculinity, what it is and where it's been and where it should go. Thanks, brother. I'm pretty excited. And thanks for having me. You know, I, um, I'm always eternally grateful when someone trusts me with the people who trust them. So thank you. Hey, I appreciate you coming on, Mark. It's been a wonderful conversation. Again, thank you so much for all you do for everyone out there. And I appreciate your time, my friend. Thanks, man. I really want to ask all of you listeners out there, if you could take a couple seconds, go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star written review that really helps get the podcast in more eyes, in more ears, um, and just really helps podcasts grow in, in 
every aspect possible. So um, I would really appreciate it if you could pause it, go leave us a five-star written review on Apple, subscribe on Apple and Spotify podcasts and turn notifications on so you get notified whenever we launch a new episode.